Chapter 8 How to Be Super Lamb In reading the Sermon on the Mount, have you ever unconsciously passed over the words, The meek will inherit the earth? The idea of meekness is faintly repugnant to many. We would prefer a John Wayne Christianity where the men and me are men and the women are strong and beautiful. Why did Jesus single out meekness in his longest recorded sermon? Was he saying that someday the world would be handed over to a bunch of wimps? What does it mean to be meek? First, realize that Jesus Christ was not a weakling. I have been to the Israeli wilderness and have felt the furnace-like wind and seen the rugged mountains. He climbed while fasting and praying for 40 days. He had to have been in top physical condition, a real athlete to have done that. Jesus, you will remember, was a carpenter, and most of his friends were fishermen. They were blue-collar workers. Perhaps if Jesus had come in our time, he would have worn a hard hat and worked with cranes and earth-moving equipment, building high-rises. Jesus wasn't a wimp, and he isn't calling for an army of wimps. When Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, we must understand the Bible meaning of meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is the character trait of a strong person who is continually surrendering his or her rights to God. Jesus was the perfect example of meekness. Excuse me. <laughs> I just burped. <laughs> For as he said, he did nothing except what his father told him to do. Jesus was meek when he took out a whip and drove the money changers from the temple, just as he was meek when he stood before Pilate and refused to utter a word to save himself. When Jesus said that the meek would inherit the earth, he was telling us his master strategy for winning the war against Satan and demon forces on this earth. God is going to utterly defeat Satan, and he's going to do it with individuals who move in the opposite spirit to the forces of darkness. We are going to win the victory, but only as we discern what the devil is doing and do the opposite thing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain what I mean. A number of years ago, during the springtime, I was invited to a Midwestern city to meet with 38 North American Christian leaders. We had been called together to try to settle an issue that was threatening the unity of the body of Christ. It was a strictly private meeting, with both sides of the dispute meeting for prayer and heated discussion that lasted several days. I had the rather unusual position of being not aligned on the particular issue. One man remarked, Lauren, you're like a man who parachuted into war and you don't know which side to shoot at. It would have been funny if it hadn't been so tragically true. The meeting was more like two sides of a war attempting a truce. One day I began to pray and I found that I couldn't do anything but cry. It seemed to be coming from deep inside me. Then I became aware that another man was crying in the same manner. Even as I wept uncontrollably, my mind seemed to tell me that the two of us were crying on behalf of the Holy Spirit for his grief over this disunity, this fresh wounding of Jesus Christ and his body. We began to have a time of intercessory prayer with all assembled there. We started with a time of making our hearts right before God. There was a time of silence while each of us asked God to show us areas of sin to confess to him. Some leaders confessed wrongs aloud to the group. Then we asked God what he wanted us to pray about. A man on one side of the controversy said, God has told me we are to pray for Jerusalem. Then, from the other faction, another said, I confirm that. God spoke the same thing to me. 
What happened next was most unusual. A third man spoke, saying, God is showing me a mental picture, a vision. I see a wild boar tearing up a vineyard. What a strange thing, I thought. Yet another person said, with mounting excitement, God brought a scripture reference to my mind. I looked it up, and it was about a wild boar in a vineyard. He read aloud the passage from Psalm 80 that held this unusual reference. Amazement began to dawn on our faces around the room. Something far bigger than us was at work here. We bowed our heads, and one or two prayed, asking God to help us understand what the wild boar meant, and the vineyard. It was such a curious scripture passage. Then, one of the men spoke up and said he had an idea. God was using the wild boar to symbolize a spirit of religious controversy, and the vineyard was Jerusalem. It suddenly seemed clearer. The understanding was falling in place for all of us in that room. I know it made sense to me. My mind flicked back to the occasions when I had visited the Holy Land. Jerusalem is the birthplace of three religions which have fought and shed one another's blood over centuries. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I remembered the sense of outrage I felt at the display of religious disunity in Jerusalem, whose very name means peace. It was like a religious Disneyland. Every kind of religious practice, ritual, shrine, and festival was there. Even the various branches of Christianity vied for attention, each claiming to have the true sights of various happenings in the life of Christ. In one of these shrines, shared by different sects, a fist fight broke out once because a priest from one side lit the candles belonging to the other side. In our meeting in the Midwest that day, after we understood the wild boar vision, we began to pray fervently for the peace of Jerusalem. We asked God to bring an end to the religious controversy that had torn the city apart for hundreds of years. Then, the man who had received the vision exclaimed, I can still see the wild boar. It's looking directly at me and it's not moving. A chill crept around my neck. It was as if Satan were mocking us. We were powerless against him, no matter how earnestly we prayed. At that moment, another leader spoke aloud with a word from the Lord. You cannot drive out that spirit of religious controversy because you yourselves are not united. The meeting broke up after four and a half days. Not everyone left our meeting in peace and agreement, but God began a process there of public and private humbling. Many stood in those four and a half days to confess shortcomings and ask for forgiveness, for publishing charges against other Christian ministers under the guise of def defending doctrinal truth. As we left, the temperatures had cooled. We still didn't share the same ideas, but we shared a sense of love for one another. The controversy was diffused. For me, though, the experience was the loose tail of a ball of string that began to unravel, showing me why we were so often powerless before Satan. I slowly began to see how the principle of ministering in the opposite spirit really works. Many Christians struggle with a sense of powerlessness over the darkness in their lives. Yet, Jesus has given us, his followers, authority over all the power of the enemy, promising that we would win as we engage Satan in battle. His word states that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, but we will have no power nor authority against the devil, either in prayer or evangelism, if we are not moving in the opposite spirit and attitude to him in any given situation. When Jesus sent out seventy of his followers to go and minister ahead of him, he said, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
Ordinarily, wolves make short work of eating lambs, but not in this case. God's master strategy for taking back the people of the earth from Satan, from Satan's hold, does not include us using excessive force, even though he is infinitely more powerful than the devil, and he has a force of angel that number outnumbers Satan's two to one. He is going to use lambs, meek ones, but not weak ones, super lambs. God isn't interested in shortcuts either. Have you ever really thought about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? What was the devil trying to get him to do? I believe it was to take a shortcut to avoid all the pain and humiliation of the cross by going after God's will the devil's way. The devil promised to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would worship him. God's goal in sending Jesus to earth was to give his son all the kingdoms in the world. One day it is predicted in Revelation. The kingdoms of the earth will be the kingdom of our Lord. Revelation 11, verse 15. In a smaller way, this kingdom is already coming through the church of Jesus Christ. But someday it will be finally and completely fulfilled when Christ returns to earth. Satan was promising Jesus the instant achievement of that goal, sidestepping the pain and suffering of the cross and the obedience of Christ's followers for many hundreds of years afterwards. What do we learn from this story? Jesus refused Satan, and we must refuse him too. We have to learn to discern when the devil is offering us a shortcut, when he is tempting us to do God's will the devil's way. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't go ahead and throw the devil into the bottomless pit now and do away with his evil influence and power? There are many answers to this question, perhaps an entire book's worth, but... I want to concentrate on just three. I believe God allows Satan's attacks, first of all, to destroy his work through our obedience. Satan comes in darkness, but our obedience to the Holy Spirit turns the light on. We often hear about the speed of light, but a friend of mine named Campbell McAlpine likes to talk about the speed of darkness. The darkness flees just ahead of light, about 186,000 miles per second. So just turn on the light. A number of years ago, we were conducting training schools in a rented mission mansion in Hilo on the eastern side of the island of Hawaii. The facility was ideal, large enough to house many of our students with a living room suitable to be our lecture room and chapel. We had a lease through the summer of that year which after we planned to move to Kona on the western side of the island. But one day we were approached by our landlord. Another group wanted the facility and was willing to pay for us to leave early. It wasn't that simple, though. The group wanting to move in were bringing with them an evil mix of Eastern religion, drugs, and sexual immorality. They worshipped the man who was their guru. Later it was reported that they had killed a baby as a human sacrifice. They were offering us $2,000 just to get us to move out two weeks early. We prayed and asked God what to do. We had the perfect right to refuse them. Our lease wasn't up yet. Instead, we had some rather surprising guidance. The Lord impressed us to go ahead and move out and not fight them. One scripture that was, qui was quickened to me was 2 Samuel 5. In this chapter, God and David and his armies not God told David and his armies not to move until they heard the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, because he himself was going out ahead of them to strike the army of the Philistines, 
It was the description of an ambush. I sat and pondered this. Was God setting up some kind of ambush against this group? Is that why he wanted us to do nothing and just move out? The guru sent two young women wearing sexually provocative clothes to try to persuade us. Sitting on the lawn furniture behind the mansion, they again offered the $2,000. I told them kindly but firmly that we didn't want their money. We would move out immediately, but we wouldn't touch their money. But why, one asked. Apparently they had been prepared for a fight, but not for this. Ever since this situation had developed, we had been praying earnestly for the people in this group to be set free and come to know Jesus as their Savior. So now, sitting behind the mansion, I began to tell these two women about Jesus Christ and how he was the only one they should worship and serve. I told them we would move out early, but only because God told us to do. Then I warned them of the spiritual deception they were caught up in. For $2,000, I had purchased an excellent chance to witness to these two women about Jesus. We moved to Kona, but reports came to us quickly, going in, going on in the Hilo mansion. They set up a throne in the very room where we had prayed and worshipped Jesus and heard lectures from the word of God. They put the guru on that throne and bowed down to him. As we heard of this, my skin crawled and I remember the strange idea that God was setting up an ambush. In just eight weeks, the guru was hand gliding on another island. A freak wind came up and blew him against the jagged cliffs along the shore. His followers brought his battered body back to the mansion, refusing to have him embalmed, believing for three days that his decomposing body would rise from the dead. He didn't. God had set up an ambush. A few weeks later, I learned through Pat Boone that his neighbor's daughter and at least one other who had been in that cult had become converted and were now followers of Jesus. The cult itself disbanded. Still later, after our center was established in Kona, we returned to once again use the mansion in Hilo for a Christian training program. Darkness had fled before the light, and all we had to do was obey God, witness for him, and turn down $2,000. God allows attacks from the enemy in order to extend Christ's kingdom on earth. We take literal ground for God in this world every time we respond correctly to Satan's offensive. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this happened in the centuries following Christ's return to heaven. A tiny band of Christians found themselves pitted against the formidable forces of the entire Roman Empire, a giant nation with hundreds of thousands of soldiers enslaving every known nation on earth, fueled by the ambition and greed of its citizens and the madness of its dictators, had turned its entire fury upon a handful of people who preached that the Son of God had come to live, die, and rise again in a remote part of the empire. Early believers responded to this onslaught in the opposite spirit. Thousands went meekly to their deaths in, even, in every terrifying form which successive emperors could devise. But the meek won the war. For every Christian torn apart by the lions of the arena, more would see their silent witness and join their ranks. Within 300 years, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. Eventually, the world's mightiest nation lay in ruins, while Christianity continued to spark and spread among new lands and peoples. The meek do inherit the earth. A third reason God allows the enemy to attack us is so that he can provide for our needs through those attacks, spiritual, mental, emotional, material, and physical. 
When Samson was attacked by a lion, he destroyed the wild beast in the power of the spirit. Later, he returned and found honey in the carcass of the animal. Samson gave this riddle to the Philistines. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. What does this mean to us? Satan comes against us as a roaring lion, seeking to devour us. But in every act the Lord allows, there is a blessing in store for us. As we move in the opposite spirit, God causes the wicked to store up for the righteous. Proverbs 13, verse 22. The book of Esther tells us that Satan stirred up a wicked, ambitious man against a good man. Haman's hatred and envy of Mordecai led him to plan Mordecai's death. Instead, Haman was hung on the gallows prepared for Mordecai, and his beautiful house and possessions were given to Mordecai. God allowed the wicked to store up for the righteous. God said we are going out as lambs. When we come into a conflict with the world and respond the way worldly, worldly people do, fighting fire with fire, we stop being lambs and become wolves. A friend of mine, Gary McKinney, who leads our, spirit, our ministry in Spain, was visiting with me and told me of an experience he had had. Gary was visiting his parents in New York State when one day he saw two members of a cult walking up to the front door. As they rang the doorbell, Gary asked the Lord what to do. God told him to share how much Jesus meant to him from his time of devotions that morning. So Gary invited them in and began to talk to them about Jesus. He refused to be drawn into an argument. He just told them how real Jesus was and that what he had done for him was very weak. This very weak. They opened up to him. Instead of launching into their prepared arguments, they quietly listened to Gary and asked him questions. As Gary related his story, his mind was elsewhere. With a strong stab of my conscience, I remembered my encounter I'd had with a member in that same worldwide cult, only it was a very different story. It was during a door-to-door -door witnessing outreach in Seattle. Every day, each day, we had different partners as we went out two by two to talk to people about the Lord. That particular day, I was teamed with a pastor who was a good friend of mine. It would be a fun day, I thought. We walked up the walkway to one particular house, just another suburban tract home, and were met at the door by a square, balding man in his thirties. To our surprise, there was none of the usual sales resistance. He eagerly ushered us in, offered us a seat, and settled back to talk. My friend opened his Bible to begin, but the man fired a question at us. What do you think about the Trinity? I shot a look at my, at my partner. He gave me a little smile, for now we knew who we were dealing with. He asked, we asked him if he was in such and such a group, and he admitted, proudly, he admitted proudly to being one of their local leaders. We settled back and got into a serious debate. No one was, betting, was better prepared to dissolve this cult's belief than my friend and I. We launched into a barrage of arguments with the man, and he parried, countering our scriptures with his scriptures, our logic with his own. It was a great debate, and after an hour and a, an hour or two, I noticed the man was whittling, was wilting. He was outgunned. Finally, all of his geniality disappeared. Angrily, he stood and asked us to leave. My friend and I walked down the street with our Bibles, laughing and congratulating ourselves on how we had won over a well on owned argument skills of this cult leader. Now, years later, I remembered that afternoon and dropped my head in shame. 
I thought I had won, but now I knew I had lost. Contrast between the story I had just heard from Gary, his gentle, loving reaction to the two in New York, and my own reaction in Seattle couldn't have been greater. I could hardly wait to finish my conversation with Gary and get away by myself. Alone, I prayed and asked God to forgive me. I had violated the principle of ministering in the opposite spirit. That particular cult is known by its aggressive, arguing spirit. It is controlled by the spirit of religious controversy. Instead of meeting that spirit with the opposite one, humility, I had entered into it and embraced the same spirit. We had won the argument that day in Seattle, but had left behind a man who was humiliated and further alienated from the gospel. There are many spirits or manifestations of the devil and his forces working around us. One of the spirits of Satan most rampant in the world today is the spirit of greed. Have you ever led an experience when greed seemed personified in human faces? I did. It was a number of years ago when we were trying to buy our property for our Christian university in Kona, Hawaii. The property, a former hotel, had been entangled in bankruptcy proceedings for eight years. Several were fighting to their, for their rights to buy it. Squatters had moved into the disgust hotel. This disused squatters had moved into the disused hotel, and the caretaker was illegally renting to them. We heard about all sorts of unlawful activities going on on that property, which had rapidly become overgrown with dense tropical bush. In the buildings were drug trafficking and prostitution, and the local people hinted at political corruption in that situation. Yet, God was telling us to buy this particular place. We prayed, and he even impressed us with the exact price we were to offer and the terms for payment. On the day of the hearing, my lawyer and I were confident as we strode into the oak-paneled courtroom to make our offer. Dotted throughout the gallery were various parties waiting with their lawyers, also eager to buy the hotel. The attorneys rose in turn to speak, each grasping after his client's share. I watched as the demands became more and more heated. Every party was demanding their rights. It reminded me of small children, each one tugging at the same toy. The spirit of greed was like a physical presence in the room. Those who held the hotel in receivership were asking for a price more than four times the amount we were going to bid. The judge behind the high, old-fashioned bench looked down at me. Mr. Cunningham, I understand you have an offer to make. We didn't have very much money at all, but we did have the word of the Lord, so I confidently made our bid to the judge. The exact amount which the Lord had impressed us, somehow we would get to the rest. I returned to Kona and called our group together to pray. I was sickened by the greed I had just seen, but were we in fact, were we in fact any different? Weren't we just as eager to buy the same prime property as the others in that courtroom? As objectively as possible, I made a mental checklist of our attitudes and the reasons we wanted to buy the hotel. Yes, we were different. We would not benefit personally from this property. We would merely use it to carry out God's work, and that would be done in a frugal, no-nonsense manner. And not only did we want it for different reasons, but we would get it in a very different way. We would move in the opposite way to greed. What is the opposite of greed? but giving and generosity. There were 250 of our staff and students in Kona, where we were attempting to buy the hotel. 
We each turned our pockets inside out, giving money for a deposit on the property. We came up with $50,000, but it wasn't enough. We had saved a large amount of money in our mission for the eventual purchase of a ship to carry practical aid and the word of God to needy ports in the world. We had been praying and believing for that ship for a long time, but we decided God wanted us to give away the money, an amount in six fingers, to Operation Mobilization, another mission that was purchasing a ship for ministry. After we did this, a third Christian ministry, Daystar, gave us some property worth ten times more than the amount we had given to Operation Mobilization. That property gave us collateral to apply for a bank loan. We were on our way to buying a hotel. The days stretched into months as we continued the process of praying, giving, praising God for eventual victory, applying for bank loans, and waiting to see if our bid would be accepted. During this waiting period, the Lord showed us we were to have a time of generosity beyond cash givings. We each asked God if, we were, if there were something we owned that we should give to someone else. The purpose wasn't to get funds. It was simply an act of generosity to counter the spirit of greed operating in this situation. For several days it continued as individuals prayed, then went to their rooms and apartments, and brought out their treasures. One family gave another a beautiful oil painting. Others gave household items and favorite pieces of clothing. One boy gave away a surfboard for which he had saved for months, only to receive a pair of shoe skates from another kid. As we gave, it wasn't painful at all. It was fun. It felt like Christmas. We saw the spirit of greed broken wide open in the spiritual realm in those months. Some may explain it away, saying we just got lucky, but all 250 of us knew it had been the simple act of giving that allowed us to finally purchase the property 11 months later at the exact price and terms which we had originally been given by the Lord. One-fourth the asking price of the owners. There are many different spirits and corresponding attitudes in operation at any given time. A spirit is a personality, but it also influences our attitudes and conduct. The Holy Spirit is personal, and so are Satan and his follow angel, fallen angels. You can be under a spirit's influence, moving in the same attitude, or you can move further and actually become possessed by that spirit. But... Even if you are only fleeting influence for an hour or a day, you can never win spiritually for God until you are free from that spirit and moving in the opposite way, Christ's way. There is, for example, the spirit of disloyalty. We must move in loyalty. We must be committed to the cause of Christ more than we are committed to examining our personal differences in the body of Christ. We've had enough walls built in the body of Christ. It's time for bridges. In an age when people are so apt to attack another's actions, beliefs, and motives, in a day when Christians addressed other Christians' faults over the national media, it's time to return to loyalty. Not blind loyalty, but loyalty that includes forgiveness and a commitment to work together over faults and differences, to go in private to settle wrongs. Matthew 18, verse 15. Love covers a multitude of sins. We need to restore each other in gentleness. Galatians 6, verse 1. Satan is also moving the spirit of independence. He wants us to think that we, and the particular group we belong to, can stand alone. Peter Marshall and David Manuel, in their book, The Light and the Glory, describe how the pilgrims came to the land of America. 
They entered into covenant relationships with one another for the purpose of winning the Indians on this continent of, to Christ and establishing a missionary nation to reach the world. At first, they continued in that spirit. Each one committed to the other and began to see great numbers of Indians turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, the spirit of independence was introduced. Each colonist received 300 acres of land for himself. They began to seek personal wealth rather than the com common purpose they had before. After that, Indian uprisings began, and the peace between the white man and the Indian was shattered. The resultant slaughter and bloodshed lasted more than two centuries, and America strayed very far from the missionary purpose of the first settlers. Today, we Americans still continue to have more than our share of pride and independence. It is the source of some denominations in this country being splintered into scores of different organizations, each one saying, we can't learn from others, we got it all to ourselves, we don't need anyone else. That is the spirit of independence, and it can only be won over by a spirit of interindependence, recognizing we need one another and committing ourselves to each other in humility and unity. There is also the spirit of immorality. It must be met by the spirit of purity. Back in the 1950s, the drug epidemic first became known to most Americans through the violence of juvenile delinquents in the inner cities. Who did God raise up as a voice in this situation? A former drug addict? Someone well-versed in the ways of the streets and the laws of urban jungles? No. He brought a skinny, country preacher, totally ignorant of the complexities of sin he found in the New York City. David Wilkerson, who later wrote of his experiences in The Cross and the Switchblade, couldn't have been more opposite to the tough, street-hardened addicts to whom he brought the message of Christ. It was the principle of winning through the opposite spirit. At one point, David was surrounded by armed gang members threatening him with their switchblades. David responded, You can cut me in pieces if you like, but every piece of me will still go on loving you. Right now, Satan is having a heyday with the spirit of rejection and alienation. Many have been wounded as children and still expect people's reaction to them to be rejection. Much of sexual immorality, so com commonplace today, is rooted in rejection. Men and women are looking for acceptance and affirmation through sexual immorality of all kinds. We Christians agree that we have all sinned and that Jesus died for sinners and will forgive any who comes to him in repentance, confessing and forsaking their sins. But there is one sin that is harder for us to forgive than any other. One group of sinners, the most Christians avoid above all others. That group is homosexuals. Some Christians even doubt that homosexuals can be saved and changed. It has become for us the unpardonable sin. We may say that we hate the sin and love the sinner, but how many of us walk up to a homosexual, put an arm around him or her, and say we love him? Anyone can detect a spirit of love or pick up on a veneer of false love, conferring an attitude of loathing. I have come to the conclusion that the sin of homosexuality, and it is a sin, is not a condition you are born with, but a choice. It is a temptation to people who have been rejected. They have sought for love and are finding it in counterfeit ways, which is lust. 
In a cruel paradox, rejection leads them to homosexuality, which in turn brings them further rejection from society, and the counterfeit love of homosexuality brings bondage. Homosexuality is a powerful bondage, but it will never be broken if we as Christians are not able to offer its victims the love and acceptance that they are seeking in the first place. Now the spread of AIDS, often considered a homosexual disease in the West, has fueled that massive rejection. One homosexual AIDS victim recently lay dying in a Dallas hospital. A volunteer was helping him write out his will when she noticed a tear rolling down the man's face. She reached over and put her arms around him and held him. After a minute, he spoke. Do you know how long it's been since anyone touched me? As far as I know, it wasn't a Christian who was offering him the human warmth. It should have been. I believe this modern plague could offer the church a tremendous opportunity to extend love and see thousands of homosexuals set free. How many people, homosexual or heterosexual, do we turn away from the gospel because we try to hit them over the heads with our Bibles? They turn away, but perhaps they are not rejecting the gospel, but our condemning approach. It is possible to move in the gentle spirit of truth and still be able to show people in the sin that they must be set free. There's a spirit of covering up or concealment based on pride. We need to meet the spirit with its opposite, transparency, with God and with one another. Transparency is the fruit of humility. Humility is being willing to know for who you are. Pride is trying to be known for something that you are not. When the public demands that its political and religious leaders are open and honest with them, that is right. But we must also be open and honest with one another. Pastors with their congregations, teachers with their students, parents with their children, leaders with their followers, followers with their leaders, husbands with their wives, everybody. Why is it some people seem closer to God than others? Why do some struggle along in mediocrity, while others seem to take off in the extent of their authority and ministry? We are all equal at the foot of the cross, but you can easily see that we are not all equal in the extent of the scope of our influence in ministry and power with God. The larger your ministry, the greater degree of transparency and openness you must have. You see, the enemy can have power over us if we have any unconfessed sin in our lives. Perhaps we have a sin which we have confessed to God, but we live in fear that it will someday be brought out against us. The devil becomes our blackmailer, holding that secret over us. Unconfessed sin is an area of weakness until we bring it out into the light. Once confessed and repented of, it is under the protection that openness with God and with man brings. Then, if your enemies bring something against you, you can say, That's already taken care of. I've confessed it to God and to the appropriate people. Childlike transparency has the key to the authority Jesus had when facing his accusers. Fear is perhaps the greatest spirit we have to combat in ourselves and in the world as we go out and take ground for the, God, for the gospel. His word teaches that perfect love casts out all fear. So, love is the opposite of fear. I had a great secret in my life as a young husband. It went on for years because I understood the basis of it and endeavored to deal with it. Darlene is the most precious person to me in the world. As I told you in the first chapter, I gave up my rights to her life when we were involved in a car accident in Arizona. 
But a strange string of events led to a deeper understanding. Sometimes we need to do more than relinquish rights. We need to understand what the enemy is trying to do in our lives and combat it in the opposite spirit. Darlene was involved in a series of mishaps. When we were newlyweds on a ministry trip to Samoa, Darlene slipped and fell on the slippery edge of an oceanside cliff with swirling waves below. She lay unconscious where I found her with her feet over the edge. We later learned that each year a few people slipped in that spot, fell into the ocean, and were washed out to sea by powerful tides. In fact, we found out that the local name for the place was Sliding Rock. Two years later, we were involved in the car accident in Arizona, which I told you about in the first chapter. Again, Darlene was almost killed. A year after that, she and I were driving two vehicles in, con in convoy in the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We had been given a station wagon for our mission, and we're, we're on our way back from picking it up. To my horror, I looked in my rearview mirror to see her car spinning out of control in the midst of several large trucks. Her vehicle hit the center divider on the turnpike and set, and the gas tank burst into flames. Yet, somehow Darlene was unharmed. Sometimes later, our winter... Sorry. Sometime later, one winter while we were living in Switzerland, Darlene reached behind an industrial-sized washing machine to retrieve a piece of laundry. She didn't know someone had been working on that machine and had left a protective cover off. Her hand touched a live electrical wire. She stood there with snow-covered shoes on a concrete floor, frozen to the exposed wires with her body pinned against the steel of the washer as 340 volts of electricity coursed through her body. Darlene told me later that she screamed and screamed and no one heard her. She cried out to the Lord to save her life, but still the jolts pounded through her. Lord, she finally cried, we've given our lives to you and I'm praying and it's not working. Instantly, God spoke to her. Bind the devil. Darlene knew what that meant. She bound the devil, praying against him in the authority of Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, verse 19. As soon as she did, she was hurled off the live wire and slammed into the wall opposite of the washing machine. For several days, she experienced heart palpitations and weakness, and the hole burnt in her palm by her hand took months to heal. But she was all right. Again, though, it was Darlene who had almost been killed. After a few years of these and other accidents, it occurred to me that something was going on. Maybe it wasn't just that Darlene was accident-prone. Perhaps this was spiritual battle. It was not enough to guess at things at the spiritual realm. We don't have to be ignorant of Satan's devices against us. I asked the Lord to give me understanding, and he gave me a dream. I was standing on a cliff looking down on the rocks below, where I could just make out a body. People started to gather around the body, and with a sudden feeling of with a sudden feeling of desolation, desolation. sorry guys. With a sudden feeling of desolation, I knew it was Darlene. I woke up and tried to shake off the lingering fear, but it stayed. Then I prayed, and it dawned on me: Darlene's life had been targeted by Satan. Or perhaps the target was just me and my fear for her life. Strangely, I was aware that all of this was connected somehow with my grandfather, my dad's father, and the tragedy that married his life. 
Grandpa Cunningham was a young minister with a growing popularity as he went from church to church, teaching and expounding the Word of God. He loved the Bible and spent every spare minute in it until he knew so much scripture by memory they called him the Walking Bible. When my dad was five years old, Grandpa's lovely young wife died of smallpox. He stumbled into another marriage, trying to find someone to care for his five children while he attempted to continue his traveling ministry. The marriage was a disaster. There was a divorce, and Grandpa spent the rest of his years preaching in small backwater places. His promising career as a preacher was flawed, if not ended. Much other misery happened, which is told in greater details in my book, Is That Really You, God? As, the de as these details came to mind again, I saw what my dream meant and why so many things had been happening to Darlene. My grandfather's ministry had been attacked through the death of his wife, and now Satan was trying to attack me with that fear that my wife, too, would die. Once I recognized this, I com commanded Satan in Jesus' name to stop bringing, bringing these accidents on Darlene. I surrendered her again to God and asked the Lord to remove the fear from my heart. That was six years ago. The string of Dark's accidents ended. You see, you can't live in fear for someone you have given up to God. The opposite of fear is love, power, and a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. As we move in these spirits opposite to fear, we can see God moving on our behalf in a powerful way. He can either release us through the strength to suffer and even die for his name if necessary, or he can deliver us, protecting us supernaturally. Such was the case with the little girl in East Germany. I heard her story from Pastor Gerard Wessler while speaking at his church in Frankfurt. This little 10-year-old girl was the daughter of a Christian family in Mecklenburg, East Germany. She had to attend the local communist school where they were systematically tried to destroy the students' belief in God. For instance, the teacher would tell the children to bow their heads on their desks and ask God for candy. After waiting a while to see that nothing happened, the teacher would laugh and say, See, students, there is no God. Now, ask the government for candy. Then, a piece of candy would be given to each on the government's behalf. One day, the teacher told the students to stand and repent, repeat after her, There is no God. The little Christian girl refused, explaining to her teacher, But I believe there is a God. The teacher seized on this helpless little girl, determined to make her change. You are to write a paper tonight. Put this statement down fifty times. There is no God. The little girl went home and prayed with her parents about the problem, then wrote fifty times, There is a God. When she returned with this paper the next day, her teacher was enraged. The woman lashed out. This time you will write, There certainly is no God, seventy times, and if you don't, you and your parents are going to be in a lot of trouble. The child and her parents prayed again, and she returned with another paper, writing seventy times, There certainly is a God. The teacher became furious when reading it, shouting, For tomorrow you write one hundred times, there definitely is no God, and if you continue to resist, I'll go to the police and you and your parents will see what happens. By now, this incident had become known in all the village. It was a fight between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. The parents and the little girl knew that it was a stake, 
but they would rather suffer than deny their Lord. So the little girl wrote 100 times, there definitely is a God. The following day, the teacher looked at the paper. With her voice shaking, she shouted, Now I'll go and denounce you at the police officer. Let's see whether your God will help you. At this, the teacher went out to the schoolyard, got on her bicycle, and rode toward the road. But she didn't get far. When she passed the school gate, she suddenly fell from her bike. Her heart had stopped, and she lay dead on the ground. The children saw this, having watched her through the classroom window. They ran out of the room, gathered in shock around her body. Then one person shouted out loud that the others joined in chanting, There definitely is a God. There definitely is a God. When we have relinquished our rights in God, we have nothing to fear from the enemy. Even a little girl who belongs to Jesus has more power than an entire atheistic government. God can either deliver us or he can give us the strength to suffer for his name. As we move in the opposite spirit, we can indeed be the, the meek who inherit the earth.